This episode of Meeting in Middle America with Stephen Olakara is brought to you by UW-Milwaukee, Waggett, and Bridge and Build. And now, here's your host, founder and CEO of the Millennial Action Project, Stephen Olakara. Welcome to Meeting in Middle America. We are so thrilled to have you joining us. Hope you are all safe at home. On the pod today is one of my favorite leaders in the entire country. He is a state representative in Mississippi, and he is the co-chair of the Mississippi Future Caucus, which is affiliated with the Millennial Action Project, State Representative Jeremy Anderson. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Stephen. Happy to be here. Now, we've had a lot of great experiences together over the years, and you've been a part of a number of key changes in Mississippi. But one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because I think we all can learn from the recent effort to take down the Confederate-laden state flag in Mississippi and clear the way for a new one. You're very much in the center uh, of those conversations, building bridges to new allies. And and so I want us to, to learn from that, and we'll get to that in a second. But first of all, just so we can get to know you a little bit more, tell us more about your journey into public service. Where are you from in Mississippi and what ultimately led you to being elected as the youngest state representative in Mississippi? Sure. So, you know, I've always had aspirations on, on running for office uh, since I was in uh, elementary school. My best friend, Daniel Roberts, who um, have, have worked in the White House under President Obama, uh, as well as First Lady Michelle Obama, and uh, he and I both had aspirations on, on being politically involved in some manner. We actually had an agreement that uh, we both wanted to run for governor. And so we had an agreement that he would run for governor first and then I would run for lieutenant governor and I'd, I'd run for governor next. <laughs> and so um, the interest has always been there. And um, actually, when I, my junior year in college is when I ran for state representative and was elected at the age of 21. And um, I originally was going to run for alderman at large here in the city of Moss Point because I was in college. And so um, the opportunity presented itself to run for state representative. And I have an uncle that told me to go be or go home. And so I decided to run for state representative. And um, my constituents had a couple of things that they held me, uh, held me for. And that was a promise that I would finish school, uh, that if, if elected, I must finish school, that um, if I did not finish school by the election, the next election, they would no longer vote for me. And so um, that was something that I had to make sure I held myself accountable for doing, um, as well as being a leader within the community. One of the interesting things about um, the election in 2013 was that um, our our method for campaigning was that we were basically uh, receiving the torch and, and continuing to move forward um, from a generation of leaders who kind of helped us get to where we are um, today. And so one of the things that I uh, was very uh, adamant about is making sure constituents know that uh, passing the torch is not the end of, of, of this journey. Um, we must continue to work together while, you know, generations before before me, um, 
led us to this point, it is important to utilize some of the resources and utilize some of the, of the walks um, of the journey to, to understand where we've come from and where we're going because that fight still continues. That's right. Now, I, I have a memory of when we first met, which is, I think, a classic millennial experience because it might have been in 2015 or 2016, you were following Millennial Action Project on Twitter and we saw this guy down in Mississippi just liking a bunch of our stuff. And we looked at what you were working on. We're like, who is this guy down in Mississippi? <laughs> and eventually it was very clear that we had to meet and, and talk about how uh, we can get you involved in, in Millennial Action Project. And, uh, and <laughs> do you remember that, that, uh, that interaction on Twitter? I do. You know, that's, again, the power of social media uh, is, is kind of where all of that started. And, and we, have, yeah. you know, our relationship has, has grown since that particular uh, interaction. And we've done amazing work here in the state um, as, as millennials in general and uh, working across the aisle because of the Millennial Action Project. And, and that has helped us prepare ourselves, um, not only as individual lawmakers, but it has provided um, the Millennial Action Project has provided resources as a as a caucus for us to advocate for working across the aisle to advocate for um, change within our own communities individually, but also understanding the value of uh, working across the aisle in Mississippi and also using resources around the country, which has been a tremendous asset to move forward here. That's right. I think you capture it maybe the two most important themes from from this work it's it's about creating change uh that our communities need and it's about being a bridge builder working together um across our lines of difference and and you've done that so effectively and before we get to some of the tangible you know successes you've had i'm just eager to hear from you how how did you come to that methodology how did you come to that you know, place because too often I think most people who look at political leadership writ large, um, they see people who just want to throw bombs at each other, who just want to model this. They pursue this kind of zero sum politics where it's all about us versus them. Uh, and then you were coming in as a millennial and with your other fellow uh, millennials in the state legislature, and you said we want to do things differently. Like, how did you come to that place? How did you come to that realization? Um, well, you know. When, when I first got elected in 2013, there were about four millennials in the legislature. And then that turned over time between then and now. Um, we have lost millennials um, for those who decided not to run for re-election, those who ran for other positions um, within the state, um, those who were appointed to other positions, um, and those who, who ran and, and were unsuccessful. Um, and so now we are in the House, have 16 um, millennials that are in the legislature, and then we have about five or six that are in the Senate. And so that is a tremendous increase um, from, from where we first started um, when uh, we started our caucus. And so one of the, one of the major aspects of, of our caucus is trying to become the majority as a, as a caucus. Um, and, and so while we, while majority of our caucus understand the benefits of working across the aisle and understand the vision of becoming the majority, um, we still struggle with working across the aisle in many different, um, in many different, on many different issues. And what I mean by that is, people expect 
us to have a different perspective um, as it relates to working together. Um, and and it, it is still difficult for us, even as millennials, to always work across the aisle. And, and so we run into that quite often where a lot of our members are in leadership positions and still kind of fall in lockstep of the partisanship um, and not being able to, to work across the aisle on many issues. And so we have to kind of understand the reality of that and, and kind of just make significant strides where we can specifically on like the flag issue, which was recent, the most recent issue. While we did not uh, unanimously vote in that, we, it was an overwhelming vote in our, in our caucus. And so one of the things that we battle in our caucus is working to ensure that all of our members understand the value of, of keeping our caucus strong and understanding the benefit of being able to communicate with each other, even in those times where we don't always agree, um, and that's one of the that one of that that's one of the biggest things that we have tried, even outside of, out of policy perspectives, is having an open line of communication with each other, specifically on those issues where we disagree. That's right, and for those who are listening and are less familiar, the the Mississippi Future Caucus is a group of young legislators. It's a bipartisan group. Uh, that really has its eye on the future of the state and wants to change the type of leadership you see in their different chapters across the state. And as mentioned earlier, Jeremy is the, the co-chair of it. Now, let's dig into the flag uh, issue, uh, which you just raised, and unpack how this methodology that you've been talking about truly did make uh, a difference here. A lot of what you've been asked repeatedly, you know, over the last few weeks, uh, with national publications like Rolling Stone and, and local publications, what was different about this moment? What changed? And when you look at the issue on its face, it's clear that um, this would not have passed if you hadn't successfully secured the support of a number of Caucasian Republicans. And, and, and so just help us understand a little bit more how that came to be and what we can learn from this whole process. Sure, and so, you know, there were tremendous amount of um, folks outside of our caucus who pretty much led this effort. Um, we, within our caucus, have multiple people that are members of our millennial caucus that basically communicated with each other across the aisle, whereas a lot of our colleagues um, focused on securing votes within their their own political parties caucus so republicans work within their caucus to to guarantee to garner the amount of votes that they need democrats did the same and it was a little different for the future caucus because obviously it's a bipartisan caucus um, and so we were having communications even across the aisle within our caucus um, and we had members who felt the need to vote against it because of the makeup of their districts and we had those who who felt that their district was actually um, against changing the flag, but because of their ideology on the future of Mississippi, they still voted to change it. Um, and so, um, one of the one of the, the things that that changed here, I always say, is a change of heart for people. I like to believe that that's what set this particular um, vote aside from the previous votes is that people had a change of heart and where I believe that where there's a change of heart, you're able to change people's mind. 
on how they see um, how the flag affects people of color, black and brown folks specifically. Um, and, and so we're able to have more productive conversations. That's one reason, but you have to look at the reality of, of where, of where we, where we ended up. There were several forces outside of Mississippi that applied a lot of pressure to this situation. You had businesses inside and outside of the state calling for change. You had um, uh, athletic associations calling for change and demanding change if we wanted um, championships to be played here, which is a tremendous economic um, opportunity for the state. Um, we had young people uh, in our communities that were literally protesting every single day that generated thousands of people um, in person, even during COVID-19, where, you know, they were masked up and took that risk to, to mandate that change be made um, within our state. You had lawmakers who uh, were pretty much trying to promote a change within their communities, even though their communities were against the change. And so it was, it was as the Speaker of the House um, called it the perfect, uh, perfect storm. And I think that that's what changed um, this, the environment now as it relates to those previously put. Now, I also want to, Stephen, pre present a moment to reflect on how we got here. This is not something that just randomly came about. This is decades of work that was put in by lawmakers, uh, past lawmakers, past speakers, past um, um, uh, activists, past uh, CEOs of companies who demanded change and, and just didn't happen during that time but we would not be able to really change and, and, be a, and be a part of this historic moment without those folks. And so one thing that I did after I returned back to my district was I, I literally called my predecessor um, and said, um, hey, I appreciate all the effort that you did uh, to get us to this, um, to this point. I appreciate everything that you did um, before me to, to get to this point. Yes, I was the person to press the button, but I would not have that opportunity had it not been for the actions that you took while you were in the legislature. And I think that a lot of lawmakers understand that perspective. And I think a lot of Mississippians understand that perspective that this is a, this was and has always been an, a united effort to get to, for us to get to this historic moment. Well, absolutely. And we were talking the other day and you were mentioning how when the bill finally passed, you had people up in the gallery, white, black, brown, Democrats, Republicans, independents were just hugging each other. And it really was a moment of unity. And I looked up just the, the margins that it passed the state legislature. State legislature. Uh, it passed the state house on a 91 to 23 vote and it passed the Senate with a 37 to 14 vote. And so that just shows that you built a an extraordinary coalition, and and like you you quoted the speaker, truly a a perfect storm. And so what happens next? Now you achieve this historic bill. Now it appears there will be uh, a process to uh, vote on a new flag. Um, and if I recall correctly, the the bill said that future flags cannot have. A Confederate symbol in it. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, the speaker has appointed uh, his three people to the commission, which he did an amazing job with picking um, people to represent what I believe a diverse group of, of people um, from a 
um, gender. It was it was diverse in gender, it was diverse in uh, in in race, and the lieutenant governor did the exact same thing. And so we're waiting on the governor to submit um, his appointments to the to the committee. But the speaker and lieutenant governor did an amazing job of making sure that the committee that their appointments represented um, Mississippi. Uh, to, to the best of their ability. And so I applaud both of them for, for having an open mind and understanding the value and the opportunity that we have to really unite the people of Mississippi um, under a united flag. Um, one thing that, that I do want to point out is that when, when the bill passed, um, there was excitement in, there was excitement in the House there was excitement in the Senate, there was excitement in the gallery, there was excitement outside the Capitol. Um, and while that exists, it is important though, as far as go, where do we go from now, our job is not done. You know, there are still so many more challenges that are facing black and brown communities. This is only the start. And this is a minor, this is a minor uh, when, you know, people have fought decades to get this done and it should not have taken this long to in my opinion to start with but it did we were able to get that change but we must understand that we still have work to do we still have voter suppression to fight we still have um, a, a high incarceration rate when it comes to black and brown communities we still have upper mobility that lacks within black and brown communities um, we still have a, a, a lack of equity in education all of those are things that we must not rest and use our win on this flag issue as a solution to all of that. It's not. We must continue to fight for those things if we really want to make progress in the state. That's right. And I know um, I, I do want to touch on the the police reform bill you have in, in a second, but one more question related to the 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 flag issue. Um, and, and that's to address some of the counter arguments and, and folks from outside of Mississippi, I think, you know, you'll still hear some of the counter arguments and, and probably one of the most common ones is that by taking down the Confederate flag, you're kind of erasing history. And so how do you respond? I mean, my own personal view is we should learn from our history. Um, but how would you respond to that counter argument and some of the other counter arguments? And I think just one other thing I want to highlight with this is in this coalition that came together, you highlighted, I think so importantly, that it was, you know, reaching out with an open mind, not writing people off, really inviting people. So how do you address some of those counter arguments while also kind of reaching out with an open hand to bring more people in uh, to the tent? Uh, you know, around the country, we see we see the significance of the Confederate flag and what people know that to be a representation of. And so for, in my opinion, when people say that that is a part of our heritage, that may be true. Um, and and we're not uh, we're not erasing history, but we're also we're also using it as a learning opportunity. Um, you know, I always I always have a concern when I see people fly the Confederate flag and then fly the, the American flag. Uh, one because I don't think you can really fly them both. Uh, they actually fought against each other. <laughs> they weren't on the same team, and so right. it's an interesting concept uh, when people. Um, say that that it's you know it's their heritage and it, it, it might it might be but it does not belong and it does not, it does not belong as an official symbol to represent an entire state and so you know i have no i, I honestly have no problem with with people who want to honor that as their heritage that is by all means 
um, your choice. But it is not something that represents unity within a, a state, an official state symbol. Um, and where we are right now as a state, I think it is important for us to have something that unites us going forward. Um, the, the country as a whole looked to Mississippi as the as kind of the lagging state. Um, and for decades now, we've always been at the top of everything bad and at the bottom of everything good. And so I think having having this conversation, having this change moves us a little bit closer to understanding how we can continue to make progress within our state how we continue to unify the people of this state and how we can make sure that that around the country, people don't see people within the state as um, regressiveness as far as a mindset, but more as of, of a progressive state. Because as I've always said, Mississippi is really not as regressive um, as people see it to be. We have a lot of great people here in the state that are working day and night to, to make change within our community. But like every other place, we have those who are trying to prevent us from moving forward. And we won't let that hold us back, as you can see, with the historic moment that we just had in the state. Well, I remember that was part of the inspiration of why MAP wanted to come down to, to Mississippi. I remember after the you know 2016 election, a lot of people were just kind of writing off Mississippi and Alabama and other states in the Deep South. And we felt like this isn't, I think, a healthy direction for our political discourse and it's important for people to a humanize those who they don't know and really i think shine a different type of light on what's going on and we knew that uh coming down to mississippi would would be one step to um to uh heading in that direction that that you mentioned just so people can hear like some of the amazing things and the amazing people that that are working on great things in mississippi and uh one more, one more question um, before moving on to police reform is, um, and it's related to the methodology. Um, in so many instances, I've, I've seen your work and I've been really um, just uh, in awe by it, is the way in which you reach out is, I think, deeply rooted in empathy and an effort to understand and, and listen. Um, why do you think those values are important in a political leader and in our democracy in general? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. I actually, I actually have a, a friend, a new friend, um, which uh, is, is really not politically uh, in line with, with, with my policies, um, named David Bates, who is just outside of my district in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And to your point, you know, we we talk on on various um, issues, whether we agree or disagree. And so often, uh, and he's a he's a white guy. You know, he's a white guy who who commends me all the time about how open um, how open I am with reaching across the aisle for issues, whether we agree or disagree, and always having an open mind and understanding different walks. And so uh, we had a conversation recently, and, and, and from a political standpoint, I respect him probably more than I respect many of my colleagues in regards to just having an open mind of different walks of life. And so when we have, the, when we have conversations, um, 
it's articulated from a standpoint where um, I'm providing kind of my insight on on where I come from, which is different from where he comes from, right? Understanding the challenges that people in my community, black and brown, faces and those that some of the challenges that we have that he doesn't face. And so I use that same concept when I talk to my colleagues. Um, and it's a little bit different than talking to, you know, your average Mississippian or constituent when you're talking to a lawmaker because um, I always say I don't have I don't have the pleasure of seeing something from one side. I have to examine multiple sides of an issue, whether I agree with them or not. I must understand why people push against the policies that I'm pushing and why people support the policies that I'm pushing. And so outside of outside of working across the aisle, you have that same thing within your own political party. And so my, the way I govern is making sure that, that I understand all aspects of an issue and I'm able to articulate where I stand on a political policy. And so once, since I've been in the legislature, one of the, the worst things that I hear in the legislature is somebody will, I have colleagues that will vote for issues because they can't explain why they would vote against it. Even though they disagree with it, they vote for it because they can't explain why they vote against it. And so that is that is always at the forefront of, of my mind is articulating to people why I voted in favor of something or why I voted against it. That's right. Well, I still have the memory we were kind of laughing about this earlier of, you know, coming down uh, to Jackson, Mississippi and going into the state capitol for our first ever co-chairs meeting for the Mississippi Future Caucus. And, uh, the Republican co-chair at the time was Toby Barker, who's now the mayor of Hattiesburg. And you came in right away, ready to go to work, you know, with your first bill for the caucus, was asking uh, not only for support, but you wanted to get his feedback uh, on the bill as well. And I just thought that was um, such a great kind of encapsulation of this, uh, uh, this approach, this philosophy uh, that you have. And I still remember we had a, such a fun, you know, kickoff event uh, in the state capitol. And uh, the photo that a lot of newspapers went with was when we were doing the selfie uh, with with the whole crew. And um, a lot of journalists have had fun with uh, with that. Um, but just it, it was a great kickoff. And, and it's been amazing to see so much of the work you've done since then, including on the issue of racial justice, as you just now um, have been launching a an effort around police reform. So tell tell us a little bit more about what what that is, and and do you think there's any prospect to, in a similar way, build a diverse coalition around that? Yeah, and so you know that's that's also, and I actually get that question a lot, especially now that we've um, removed the state flag, the Confederate flag from the from the state flag. Um, I get that question a lot, a lot is, do I see that being an opportunity to talk about police reform? Uh, my, my colleague, Representative Amiria Scott from Jones County, uh, actually, we partnered uh, together. I co-sponsored a bill with her to um, introduce uh, a suspension resolution so that we can introduce police reforms uh, this year. Obviously, since session has been extended for us. And so there seems to be an interest in that concept in general. I've introduced two pieces of legislation for the last five years or so about police reform. Uh, one bill specifically creates a review board that reviews all of the officer involved deaths. 
and there's another one that um, that basically requires the Mississippi Bureau of Investigations to investigate all police-involved shootings. Um, I've had several DAs that have um, have spoken out in favor of the the bill for the uh, MBI to investigate, simply because it removes the political pressure out of out of the the area. So, for example, um, there are several counties that the DA is responsible for basically, you know, uh, uh, presenting the case, um, and the DA uh, knows the sheriff or knows the chief of police in that area. So it's a lot of political pressure versus automatically having a process that is that is statewide um, that creates less of a risk of um, some of the improprieties that could happen uh, within within communities. And and it's really a situation where we're trying to make sure that. Um, that it's a fair process for every situation um, in re- in regards to police-involved shootings. Well, it's such an important issue, and um, and and so grateful for your leadership on that. And I think there is an opportunity for cross-partisan engagement on police reform, and we've seen it in, in other states. And I'm hopeful that it gains traction in Mississippi. Uh, and the other big issue right now is, of course, uh, COVID and. I guess I'm wondering, how does your community, how is your community responding to, to COVID? Are you seeing people trying to kind of help each other and kind of be a good neighbor? Or are you seeing people just kind of retreat and, uh, and kind of uh, retreat from civic engagement, retreat from kind of social life? Yes, yeah, so I've actually been calling on the governor for 11 days now to issue a statewide mass order. Uh, just earlier this week, he issued a mass order for 13 counties, which I'm not sure how that makes any sense because people travel, you know, Mississippi is not a big state. So it's nothing for somebody to travel. Uh, Actually, for example, there's three coast, uh, three coastal counties. Two of the three coastal counties are in the mass um, mandate and one of the counties is not, but from, from my County. So in, in order of the coastal counties, it's Jackson County, Harrison County, Hancock County between my count, my city, which is the furthest east of Mississippi, and then Hancock County, Bay St. Louis, which is the furthest west of the state um, on the coast, they're only about 45 minutes apart. And so where there's a mass order in Jackson, Harrison, but not Hancock. And so it's nothing for somebody to drive 45 minutes and get exposed to COVID-19 and then drive back home to Jackson County. So, and then we have surrounding states who have issued statewide mask orders, for example, Alabama. Um, and, and so in order for us to really create a safer environment to reduce the risk of spreading COVID-19, we have to issue a statewide order uh, and to prevent our hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. Now, within my community, within my district, people are um, are wearing masks that, because my city has issued, the city, one of the cities I represent, um, has issued a mandatory mask order from the municipal level, um, and then surrounding cities have fallen in lockstep to do that. Uh, I believe the state has has failed to to lead on this issue. We've issued recommendations since March, and we don't need to make recommendations. We need to make mandates uh, in order to to reduce the risk uh, of COVID nineteen. But as far as people helping each other, at one point that was a big thing. I think people has, have lost interest in kind of protecting each other and everybody's just kind of doing uh, what they want to do. Uh, Stephen, honestly, I have a, a significant fear of 
where we'll be as a state in the next uh, month or two, simply because of the trend that we see in the numbers. Mississippi, uh, well, let's let's talk about COVID-19 and who it impacts. Uh, you know, my, uh, black and brown communities specifically has a higher rate uh, in infection and death. Uh, we have uh, people with uh, weak immune systems, people with pre-existing conditions, uh, the, the people that live in impoverished communities, uh, our elderly. And then when you think about all those people, that is the that is the majority of the makeup of Mississippi, who is a low-income state, who is an elderly state. And so that brings me to a great concern. Um, and we, you know, we still have failed to expand Medicaid, for example, where 300, over 300,000 people in Mississippi are still without health care. Um, and so when you take all that into consideration, I have great concern with our kids going back to school and bringing, uh, increasing the risk of exposure to COVID-19 and bringing that home to a community that's already elderly, that's already in low income. And I think that that's going to be a catastrophe for the state of Mississippi. And at the time, I think we're going to be looking at situations like we just saw in New York. Yeah. And as you highlighted, I think a major question is facing the school system and higher education system. I have friends who serve on boards of different university systems, and they're very overwhelmed with um, what they're facing this fall. Now, um, just moving to a, a slightly lighter topic. Um, what are you most looking forward to? Um, obviously, COVID presents a number of challenges this, this fall, but you know, as you look ahead to 2021 and, and what's next for you personally, what, what makes you most excited? What are you most looking forward to? Well, dealing with COVID-19, the most exciting thing I hope is the development of a vaccine. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> until we get that beat, you know, what I look forward to uh, so that people can, can, can move a little bit closer to, um, to normality within our communities. Um, you know, outside of that, though, um, one, of the, one of the things I look forward to is continuing to make progress in the state. I believe that there are significant opportunities that have presented itself for change in various areas of, of our, our government. Um, COVID-19 has been devastating in a lot of ways for a lot of people. I have colleagues that are, are you know, still struggling with COVID-19 to get over it um, and fighting to survive it. Um, families within our communities that are struggling to, to fight COVID-19, but COVID-19 also presented opportunities for us to really reevaluate how things are how things are done in the state from a government perspective to an education perspective to an economic perspective. And so um, understanding those highlights uh, of some of the positive things that COVID have opened our eyes to, utilizing that to, um, to really uh, make more progress within our community. So uh, I'm interested to, to see how we reform elections in our state. Um, which is another thing that, that my colleague, Representative uh, uh, Zakia Summers, who is also a member of our Millennial Caucus, and Representative um, uh, Jensen Owens, who is uh, continuously pushing to kind of reform the elections in our, in our state uh, as we still are, are trying to push people to the polls and make people choose between their, their health and, and their civic obligation of voting. That's still an issue. Um, in schools where we're now looking at more um, innovative ways to educate our kids um, from an economic standpoint. You know, people have argued about, um, uh, it's basically providing uh, 
money to families, uh, low-income families. Uh, my friend um, uh, in California is actually spearheading that over there. So, I mean, it's just so many. Oh, universal basic income. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, uh, it's it's so many different um, aspects of um, opportunities that we should be looking at to see how those things could actually be changed within our communities. Absolutely. Okay. Final rapid fire question. What's your favorite thing to do outside of politics when you're not working, you're not working on legislation, favorite thing to do? I love soccer. So uh, I, I coach soccer here. Uh, I actually just took over. Uh, this is my third year for boys high school soccer here uh, as head coach. And so this year, which has made that opportunity so crazy, but I've, I've taken over um, the high school girls soccer program and I've taken over the middle school boys program and middle school girls program. So I'm head coach of all four of our soccer programs here in the city of Moss Point uh, for the high school and middle school. And so um, understanding that perspective uh, of, of that new opportunity, understanding the perspective of, of the students that, that I coach uh, is always a joy. COVID has thrown a wrench in that. Um, we've had to kind of cut down on practices. So we've actually moved to a virtual practice, which is something I always look forward to because I love to see their faces. But it, it is challenging as well um, to do. But everybody's making uh, adjustments to kind of keep our students and our, and our kids and our families kind of attached to some basic form of normalcy and so that's what we're continuing to work for so i'm looking forward to the season if there is a season <laughs> and i'm looking forward to, to going to the soccer field and playing which i try to do once a week i i love the idea of you coaching and giving motivational speeches to the to the players so uh i can only imagine what that's like well jeremy it's it's so much fun talking with you always and it's an honor to call you a friend and uh it's been amazing to see all the work you've done in mississippi and the latest uh victory is just one of of, of many more uh, i know in in your legislative career uh thank you for coming on the show thanks for all you're doing absolutely thank you for what you do you've been listening to meeting in middle america with Stephen olicara sponsored by uw milwaukee waggett and bridgeville this has been a WISPolitics.com, WISBusiness.com podcast production.